Go to Revelation 12, please. Revelation 12. But we're going to start in 13. I just want you to know we're going back to 12. I just want us to see what is, in many ways, the most imaginative part of the book. It's captured everybody's fantasy and imagination. And then go back and answer why this is going on. They call him the king of kings and son of God. Worshippers hail him Lord and Savior. Messengers herald the good news of his ascension. His reign promises global peace and prosperity. In his decree reside the power of life and death. His kingdom is said to be eternal. And his name is Caesar Domitian. But the church calls him Christ Jesus. Two kings and two kingdoms. Caesar will not allow it. Revelation examines this tension with visions alternating between monsters and men, worship and war, prophets and prostitutes. But when the dust settles, only one will remain the true king of kings. And so as we go into Revelation, this is what John presents to us in a vision. While he is being persecuted as a leader of the church, Exiled to the lonely island of Patmos, he gets a vision of Jesus as the king of kings, which is intentionally politically against Caesar's own claims. And so the church needs comfort to know that they're in a hostile empire that is not happy with them following a different son of God and a different king and a different so-called emperor, Christ, Messiah, Um, and when the city that you live in is vying very competitively with your rival cities down the road to earn the emperor's favor from Rome so that your city gains more prosperity, being a Christian suddenly becomes a big problem in that city because you are the anchor holding progress back. And so the Christians began to, what at first was just social pressure, gradually began to increase into even martyrdom, and eventually became state-sponsored persecution. But at John's time, it has begun to just be social pressure, social slander, because the Christians weren't fitting in, and they were hindering progress and prosperity. So he needs to encourage the church. Heck, John needed encouragement. He's exiled on an island. So Jesus does what he does so well is he comes to us in our need and reveals himself as the one who fulfills that need. And John sees, therefore, the grand vision that we call Revelation. Now, remember their visions. Not necessarily maps of future events. Now, occasionally it will lend itself to that, but these are meant to be visions which capture the heart and soul and enrapture it to see the King of Kings as he is when in the political real-time world, it seems like Jesus is nothing more than some haloed figure in some museum on the art piece over there in the Catholic Church. So this is trying to bring it into real life so that we can see 
what is going on behind the scenes. Revelation means to reveal. And that's what the sense is, is here you have real life happening on the stage and we see these things and we feel the drama and the tension. But then revelation is a vision which pulls the curtain back so that we see the stage is just a drama. And there's actually a playwright back here and a director and there's stage hands and there's lighting and all these. And, and there, there's stacks of scripts in case people forget their lines or their part. This is what Revelation's about. It's about showing us what's really happening past the eye's ability to see. So with that in your memory, we are now entering into what we proposed last week, whether you bought it or not, is part two of Revelation. That John is not communicating one sequential series of events from chapter 1 to chapter 22. A lot of it is sequential. But that from chapters 1 to 11... He is showing us the vision from the beginning to the very end. And that in chapters 12 to 22, it's a second set of visions re-going over the same ground with a very different perspective. This second perspective is emphasizing now what was happening in chapters 1 through 11. We saw these, these seals being opened and things happening, the trumpets being blown and things happening. But what was happening behind the scenes of all that is this. There is this terrible beast and his prophet, and there's a harlot, and there's a dragon, and there's a city called Babylon. These things are at work behind the scenes of what happened in the first part. So what you have is a sandwich. You have overlap, parallel. So as we enter part two, you need to think we are not now, as I'm proposing, we are not now in territory that happens after chapter 11. We're in territory that happens before chapter 11. We're starting over from a different perspective. If you don't recall, um, this is what we have, okay? Chapter one, John is giving us a setting. I'm on this island. I'm being persecuted for the name of Jesus. Jesus shows up and gives me this vision. So I write and he writes first to the seven churches, which we presume he had some sort of rulership and pastoral leadership over. And then in chapter four, the letters are done. He's encouraged them and said, I'm writing to you guys. And then chapter four, the vision opens up and he sees himself in heaven and there he sees God seated on the throne. He's not panicking, but he's in full control. And all of the cosmos is worshiping him. All of heaven's worshiping him. These concentric circles all putting him in the center. And then in chapter 5, in the midst of this worship, John notices that the one who sits on the throne has a scroll in his hand. And we describe this scroll as the title deed of the earth. It's described like a title deed or a, like a will that Romans would pass on to their inheritors. And so here, the title deed of the earth, it has seven seals. Those are just wax things you press with your signet ring to show I'm a witness that this has been testified. It's going to be given over to this person. So seven of these signet rings have been pressed into the wax. And Jesus comes forward and takes the scroll from the hand of the one who sits on the throne. And he begins to open it. He's going to claim the earth. He's going to come and bring his kingdom to it. And one by one, he opens them and things begin to happen. And finally, he opens the seventh seal. And before he reads what's in the scroll, the, the, the royal pronouncement that everything now belongs to him, before he reads it, let all the earth be silent and hear. So seven angels come forward to blow their trumpets to get the world's attention. And one by one, they blow their trumpets 
and strange things are happening on the earth. And then finally, the seventh trumpet is blown in chapter 11, verse 15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, This, I propose, is what the scroll says. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. The royal pronouncement has been read. It's official. And so we then see that there are things that are said. The 24 elders begin to chant. They say that uh, the time has come for rewarding your servants, the prophets and the saints, and also for destroying the destroyers of the earth. So here we see judgment coming. And then in uh, verse 19, the temple in heaven was opened. Why? Because the presence of God is now coming to dwell with humans. That's why the vision of the temple being opened is there. It's coming together. As we will read in chapter 21, the dwelling place of God is now with man. And we see that happening in verse 19. So my proposition is that that's the end. Chapter 12, we now launch into a brand new set of visions going back to the beginning and literally back to the beginning, as you will see momentarily. But let's start in chapter 13, shall we? Because this is a key figure in the second part of the book. I hope I said 13. I think I said 12. I don't know. But chapter 13. Verse 1. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth like a lion's mouth. And to the dragon, uh, and to it, the dragon gave his authority and his throne and great authority. And one of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words. And it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling. That is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given over it, uh, authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to, te- to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. So here we're introduced to the infamous Antichrist. Now, Revelation does not use the word Antichrist. He's simply referred to as 
beast, because these are visions. So if you are to see the Antichrist from the perspective of backstage, he might look like a man on the stage, but backstage, we are noticing that this guy is driven by some very demonic forces, and in prophetic poetry, it comes across as a horrible monster. So this beast is described (laughs) with ten horns and seven heads and ten diadems, crowns on its horns, and blasphemous names on its heads. This sounds hideously ugly. And then in verse 2, we get this key. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. Those three animals that it's referenced to come from Daniel's vision back in Daniel chapter 7. And there Daniel portrays his night vision. And he says that he sees the sea. And out of the sea arose four terrible monsters. And then he describes each of the monsters in turn. And they're very vivid into the imagination. You can go and uh, read about it if you want to have a good night of sleep. And the first one is described as a lion. And he's got a lot of strange things to that figure. The second one as a bear, the third as a leopard. And so here we're told that this beast who rises out of the sea is a collection of those other beasts together. The fourth beast Daniel saw had the 10 horns. So we have all four of them coming together in this beast right here. Now, in Daniel's vision, these beasts were kings, he was told. He he was told they were kings of the earth. And these are specifically the kings who oppressed the people of God, Israel, in the Old Testament and even into the New Testament. And so what we see is that this beast is a kingdom of sorts that takes on the same oppressive nature that those in the past had done. Only this is the worst of the worst because it's all of them combined. Now you might notice that me reading from the English Standard Version, um, it referred to the beast as an it. The New King James refers to the beast as a he. Uh, In the Greek, it is a neuter pronoun. So it may be the most literal However, the beast does seem to behave like a person, which is why your translators opted to give him the personality of a he. But I bring this up because more than likely, the beast, though obviously led by a person, for every entity has a human figure at the head, the beast is likely a kingdom, especially if it's being likened to the ones in Daniel 7. So, The beast is this political movement which is opposed to God's people. One of his heads seemed to have a mortal wound, and its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. So here we have the portrayal of this future Antichrist whose one of his heads gets wounded mortally, which that means death, but then it gets healed and everybody marvels. And this probably gives him the permission to have absolute rule over the world. Who comes back from the dead other than Jesus? The antithesis to Christ, the antichrist, 
Um, now, can he actually come back from the dead? Who knows? It could be that he appears to be assassinated by somebody, but makes a comeback, and then it makes the world marvel. You could easily put your propaganda out there to stage it. Like, oh yeah, he was totally dead. Doctor at gunpoint was told to say that. And now, though, the world's marveling because he's back. It's total manipulation. You could totally get power that way. Or... This could be referring to the fact that this beast is like the Roman Empire of old in that it oppressed and destroyed Jerusalem, and this guy is going to oppress and destroy the Jews to the best of his ability. And so that he is a revived Roman Empire. The Roman Empire of old has gone away, and here it is being revived and brought back together. So it once died, but now it's back, and the world's going to marvel because this movement, this empire, this kingdom, this beast led by the Antichrist is going to be just as glorious and powerful as the Rome of old. So the world's going to marvel at it. So, the idea that a lot of people have talked about um, looking in their newspapers and stuff is that the ten horns and the ten crowns on this monster, it's not literally that he is, this ruler is going around with ten horns on his head. No one would follow that guy. Um, but that they're, they're symbols of ten kingdoms that are united. And so people have thrown around the idea of the European Union, uh, and other attempts of Europe uniting that if there's 10 kingdoms, there they are, they're going to get other around and make the Roman empire come back and find their appointed leader and rule things. Um, that's the way it's been talked about a lot in our current, uh, what am I trying to say? Like environment in the studies of revelation. Well, he's going to make war on the saints He's allowed to rule for 42 months. And then John gives an encouragement. Here's a call for endurance and faith of the saints. So if the church is to be raptured before all of this and to be in heaven, why is it talking about saints? Well, your easy explanation is saint is not specifying the church. Saint simply means holy ones. And the Jews can be and have been in the Old Testament referred to as saints. So then he's making war against the Jews, presuming that the church is raptured and out of the picture. By the way, to support that idea, in verse 9, you'll notice it says, if anyone has an ear, let him hear. Does that sound familiar? Back when John was writing the letters to the churches, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Here we have an omission. It just says, if anyone has, a hear, has an ear, let him hear. He omits what the Spirit says to the churches. Why? Perhaps because there is no church to talk to. <laughs> so there's this dreadful quotation in verse 10 from Jeremiah about the Israelites going to exile. Well, here's this quotation basically saying, it's doom and gloom for you guys. The beast is coming to make things very hard. And by the way, when you go to Daniel 7, you can, again, stay up all night reading this. <laughs> um, the beast is given authority, that fourth beast in that vision, to trample over the people of God for a time, times, and half a time, which many are saying is a year, time is a year, times is two, and then half 
is um, a half. So you've got three and a half years there. We have here 42 months is the amount of time he's allowed to trample the saints. So that's the connection they make. So um, this is the moment when the great tribulation happens. The last three and a half years of the present age, this terrible monster takes power and he brings a fury upon the Jewish people because they represent God. Well, there you have Antichrist. How does a guy like this have this much hatred toward God's people? And how does he get this kind of power to do so? After the Holocaust, the world said never again. Well, looks like it might happen again. But side note, by the way, you know people are totally trying to make this whole denial of the Holocaust thing and, and kids aren't being taught it anymore because, well, there's an agenda to pretend it never happened. Not necessarily here, but in the Middle East. Um, anyways, this stuff could happen. Let's see. How does this happen? Well, that's where we go back to chapter 12. We're going to find out how the beast gets into power. So, Chapter 12, verse 1, John takes us all the way to the very beginning of time. And very quick telling up to the present. And a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. Beautiful picture. What would clothing made of the sun look like? And a crown of stars. This woman clothed with the creation itself. But it is not very pretty, for she's pregnant. She's crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. So now it sounds ugly. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and on his head seven diadems. That sounds like the beast, doesn't it? His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. This beautifully arrayed woman, clad with the, with the universal beings and lights, is in agony, sweating, screaming, about to deliver this child, and there hovering over her is this horrible, hideous dragon, ready to devour what comes out of her womb. And you can just imagine, right? Here comes, here comes the baby, the head is crowned, the dragon is coiling, he snaps his head, and he's like, you know, you look away, you can't bear to see what's going to happen, and you look back, and the baby's gone. What happened? So verse 5, she gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. So before the dragon can even clamp his jaws down on the child, he comes out and he's snatched up into heaven. And the dragon is furious. He lost his lunch. But the woman is not so fortunate. 
Verse 6, the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she has to be nourished, is to be nourished for 1260 days, which is the same as 42 months, which is also our phrase, a time, times, and half a time. Now, of course, most uh, in, in Calvary Chapel, we take that to be a literal time signature. Three and a half years, this woman's going to be in the wilderness being chased by the dragon. Literal dragon? That'd be exciting. But probably the dragon, because John says he sees a sign, is a sign for something else. So who's this dragon? Who's this woman? Who's this child? So far, we have zero answers. But we do have one cryptid little name badge for one of our characters. It's in verse 5. One who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Now, what psalm did I tell everyone to go get to know last week? Psalm, oh, two of you did it. Psalm chapter 2. And in Psalm chapter 2, very clearly, God's chosen king for the nations is described in this exact terminology, the one to rule the nations with a rod of iron. And the church always applied this to Jesus. It's very clear that this child is Jesus. And from the very beginning, at his birth, this is a beautiful Christmas story, by the way. This is the story you don't usually hear. At the very, right at his birth, the dragon was ready to devour this child. And of course, we see his human attempts in history as Herod ordered the slaughter of children in Bethlehem, but the child got away. And of course, in this story, it's super condensed because the child is born and goes up into heaven. There's nothing about his life and the miracles and the teachings he did. But it's the point to say that Satan never got him in his lifetime. By the time he ascended to the father, Satan was thwarted. Which I guess we've kind of tipped our hand already, didn't we? The dragon is Satan. But that's not going to be a secret in a minute. (laughs) So this woman, though, is the one that is very confusing Do you take it literally, the mother of Jesus, Mary? Well, if this is a sign, we probably shouldn't take this to be a literal mother. So it's probably not Mary. A key is that the sun and moon and stars are part of her apparel. And when Joseph, the man of the coat, the many colored coat, when he had his dreams, he told his family and he said, the sun, moon and stars all came and bowed down to me. And the sun, moon and stars were his parents and his brothers representing the 12 tribes, the patriarchs of Israel. And that this woman thus is probably being dressed in a way to say, this is symbolic of Israel. And Israel is the people that brought forth the child to rule all the nations. But it could also be Eve. Eve who did, Israel was the offspring of Eve, and Jesus is the offspring of Israel. But remember what Eve was told? Eve was told after the fall, in Genesis 3 verse 15, I will put war between your seed and the serpent's seed. They're going to fight against each other. The serpent and your offspring, Eve, And the serpent will bruise the heel. He'll get a nice bite out of the heel of your offspring. But your offspring is going to crush his head once and for all. Well, as we go forward, we're going to see this happens. In verse 7, 
Oh, no, we're not ready. Sorry. Um, in verse six, the woman fled into the wilderness for three and a half years, 1260 days. Uh, so this is the picture of Israel. Okay. So, um, you know what? Let's come back to it. Let's go to verse seven. Now war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought back. So now Satan's at round two. I'm going to do something else. But he was defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down. Now here's his name tag. The ancient serpent, like Genesis 3, who is called the devil and Satan. Devil's Greek for... um, Defamer or accuser, Satan, the Hebrew for adversary, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb, Jesus, and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives, even unto death. In other words, even though people are dying at the hands of the devil, they're defeating him in that death, just as Jesus defeated him in his death. Verse 12, therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea. For the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. He fails to get Jesus at his birth and life. He fails to conquer in heaven. What's this war about? We just know there's war. Maybe it's for that scroll that Jesus possesses. And now he's going to strike out and fail a third time in verse 13. So remember, he's been cast out. He's been hurled to the earth. He's getting up. His pride's wounded. He's bruised. He's dusted. He dusts himself off. And now he looks for who? The woman who fled into the wilderness. And when the dragon saw, verse 13, that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. I failed to get Jesus, so I will get the woman. But the woman was given two wings of great eagles so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river and the dragon had poured that the dragon had poured from his mouth. I like it. The dragon's trying to defeat him with his mouth, but the earth opens its mouth, and the earth's mouth is more fearsome than the dragon's mouth. Amen. Even the earth comes to the aid of this woman when nobody else apparently will. And verse 17, then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. So there he is furious because he's now struck out three times. He missed the child. He failed in heaven. And now he missed the woman. So he's fuming on the, on the seashore and he's just breathing fire and brimstone. And he's, I struck out once. I will not strike out again. And so what does he do? 
conjures up a beast out of the sea. This is my project and it will not fail. So that's then when we come to 13 and we see the beast rising out of the sea. I wanted you to see the beast first so that you could get the backstory. Where does the beast come from? How is he empowered? Why is he so hateful? Because the dragon, Satan, is pouring every last ounce of the time that he has left into this project. Because all the others have failed. This time it will work. So if you will imagine, if the tribulation, this future tribulation, church is raptured, which starts at seven years, generally people say the first three and a half years are fairly merry. The world's trying to make sense of things. This guy comes into power. Nobody thinks too much of him except they like him. But at the middle of this, three and a half years in, he goes berserk. He enters into this new built temple in Jerusalem, stops sacrifices, says, I am God. Everybody now sacrifices to me and worships me. And then he begins to unleash, pardon the, the, the phrase, but literally he unleashes hell upon all of those that are trying to follow Jesus in the midst of this, right? Those that become believers during this tribulation period, he's unleashing hell against them. And so he goes crazy. He goes berserk. Why? It would seem that this war in heaven happens there in the middle of the tribulation. He's kicked out, sent down, and you can just imagine all this fury and power and hatefulness lands smack dab like the anointing of Jesus at the Jordan River, only in the evil reverse, descends and anoints this man, the Antichrist. And now he has absolute power. And this is where the insanity of I'm God, everybody must worship me and using force to make people worship him. That's where it comes from. So this beast is the incarnation. It's a kingdom incarnating the devil as Jesus is the incarnation of the love of God. This beast is the incarnation of the hatred of the devil. And at the forefront is the antichrist possessed, not by a demon, but by the angry, hateful Satan himself who has been kicked out of heaven. So that just gives you a really vivid picture of who this character is. But it gets better. Verse 11. So we're um, back to chapter 13, verse 11. And while you're going there, so the woman is in the wilderness. She's fleeing. This woman being Israel, the beast can't get all of the Jews. Some people say they're hiding in the wilderness in the rock city of Petra. You can go there today. I don't buy it. I Honestly, modern warfare could destroy Petra. It's not a safe place to hide. It's just rocks. We have bunker bombs that can blow things up hundreds of feet down in the earth. I mean... Um, so, but nonetheless, Israel is in hiding. Now, Hal Lindsey, the, f- the famous, uh, writer, um, of Revelation said that the wings of the great eagle is America, the eagle, our bird coming to deliver Israel. It's fanciful. It's really imaginative, but more than likely I interpret the Bible, the Bible and the wings of the eagle refers to the Exodus story. When God carried Israel on the wings of eagles out of Egypt into the wilderness, that's what he's doing here. He's carrying his people back to the wilderness out of the oppressive system. Now, because the serpent couldn't, the dragon couldn't get the woman. He turns on those who keep the commandments of God. 
Um, so those would be Jews who are turning to Christ and maybe weren't able to get out into the wilderness. So they will be slaughtered. And if we take what we said in chapter 11, seriously, that there's going to be a great revival of the Jews, there's going to be a lot of Jews being killed by the beast. He's going to drink their blood. We're going to see that later in Revelation 17, gorged on their blood. Revelation isn't exactly PG. So the beast, you see the political section. Now let's look at the religious section, verse 11. Then I saw, we're, again, chapter 13, 11. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. Everybody, isn't this guy great? Yeah, that's what this little sidekick is doing. It's like a cartoon, you know? You always have the sidekick. It's like helping out the, the boss. But notice that this sidekick looks like a lamb but speaks like a dragon. That's such a great phony. He looks like Jesus but he talks like the devil. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. Ooh. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast. So the statue's made, right? And now breath is given to the statue. The statue's like moving. Like, wow, they're tripped out by this. It's good CGI. That's what it probably is. Computer-generated graphics or whatever I stands for. Also, verse 16, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is, the mark is the name of the beast or the number of its name. What do you mean by the number of its name? Well, the Jews had this thing where each letter of the alphabet had a numerical value. If we did this, we don't, but if we did, it'd be like A equals one, B equals two, C equals three. So you could take your name and add up its value. So that's what it's referring to. So he's going to give a number and he says, add it up and you know what we're talking about. Uh, So verse 18, this calls for wisdom. In other words, this is code, pay attention. Let the one who understands calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. This is not a god. (laughs) This is a man. And his number is 666. Okay, there's so much to say about this, but... In short... um, No, you've heard most of what I could say. But so here we have the second beast. He's like the prophet, right? You have the religious side of this Antichrist movement. This one world kingdom has a religion. In America, church and state are separate. But back in ancient times, church and state were always unified because the church used the state and the state used the church (laughs) to get things to happen. So we see in this revived Roman Empire, this one world kingdom, the state's using the church. So beast number one is using beast number two to get their wills accomplished. And they're a wonderful team. The beast is so great, he's telling everyone. Um, 
and it gets to the point where this worship is forced, okay? The first beast is killing people if they're not worshiping him. This beast is manipulating people socially if they will not worship him. You, do, you can't buy or sell. In fact, to prove your loyalty, you must have this mark on your forehead or on your hand, 666. Well, ever since, people have been paranoid of the number 666. And I had a friend whose license plate had 666 on it. She was a Christian, and that was nonetheless unsettling for her. Um, and, but it's to the point where this has become a very superstitious thing for us, when really the numbers themselves are not evil. In fact, uh, well, they're not evil at all. And what John is saying is... Uh, the number of its name. So these numbers are supposed to be giving you a name, or at least you think it's saying. And 666, it's been said, you can na- you can make a lot of names come out of it, but one name that really kind of lands on the radar is Nero, can be spelled in 666. The Emperor Nero, the original persecutor of God's people. Now, John is seeing this vision 30, 20 to 30 years after Nero has died. So Nero is not really around anymore, but Nero has become symbolic of the first maniacs to unleash persecution. And so he could be saying that the beast is like Nero in that kind of a sense. But brothers and sisters, we don't need to fear the number itself. And being put on the hand or the forehead, we've come up with so many imaginative things that this could be, especially now the advent of chips, you know, electronic chips. And now your debit card doesn't even, it's not even the magnetic strip anymore. It's just a nice little chip right there. Like, oh, that would look really cool on my hand, wouldn't it? (laughs) Just kidding. (laughs) So, um... That's the idea. Is like, oh, okay. So like, now I'm a registered member of the Beast Nation, and so you get implanted, and now like you belong, and you can only do business if you have that scanned. Look, that could happen. It seems like something that maybe someday some bank or some nations like this sounds like a good idea. Let's try it. But that not that will not necessarily be the so-called mark of the beast. A chip, a little piece of metal in your skin, will not send anybody to hell. And we need to understand, as we're paranoid about things, I remember when self, like, smartphones were coming out, everyone's like, oh, the mark of the beast, they can track us, we're all part of the system now. Um, that's not gonna, a phone will not send you to hell. Whatever the mark of the beast will be, you will conscientiously know that you are choosing him over Christ. Nobody's ever going to accidentally get implanted. So we don't need to live in fear. My soul's at stake. I can't even go to the grocery store now. (laughs) Please don't fear. You're going to know it's going to be a choice. The king of kings or this phony king of kings. So that's what I have to say about that. Well, with all that said, let's recap. Um, So you have Eve slash Israel and Jesus coming, he kicks the devil out. The devil is angry, tries to persecute the Jews. He fails, so he inhabits this Antichrist figure who's leading this big global kingdom, and he's violently making people worship him because he's insane, satanically insane. He's saying, I'm God, and then he has his little sidekick. Everybody worship him, and you can't even buy or sell anything unless you worship him. That's the state of the future. So the um, people who look at the fulfillment of Revelation in the future say... 
So that was pretty clear cut. makes a lot of sense. My only problem... Now, can there be a one-world ruler in the future? Yeah, and there likely may be. The way we see the world, the world's yearning for some sort of unity and like one way to make things work. Like That's very, very realistic. Um, my only problem is that I don't know that John is trying to say specifically that, because what would his poor little seven churches in the Roman Empire back 2,000 years ago be actually thinking as he's writing this? I doubt they're going, wow, those poor people in the 21st century, it's going to be bad for them. I really, 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 really doubt that that's what they're thinking. And so I want to look at John real quick as a pastor, the pastor exiled on Patmos who's writing to the seven churches. What are they thinking? What is he thinking as these visions are happening? It doesn't mean that this is what it means. I just want us to pause and think, what would they have seen or how would these visions have moved them? Because Otherwise, we're just going to talk about a lot of future stuff we won't be here for. And it's like, okay, cool. We all wasted our time because we're not even going to be watching any of this. <laughs> so, um, the dragon tries to take the Christ. We're following, tracking with all this so far. But then we come to verse 7 in chapter 12. The war arose in heaven. Now, We've been talking like this is a future war in heaven. But John's readers might have thought that this war had already happened. Notice Jesus ascends to the Father, and then the war happens. Almost as if it's as a result of what Jesus did on earth that the war in heaven begins. And that Satan is cast out because of what Jesus had done on earth. His triumph at the cross and his resurrection has rendered Satan completely powerless. And he's been already cast out. And so John's hearers would have been saying, wow, we are already seeing victory happening. Um, Now, this makes it a little tricky because his readers probably would have thought that they were the ones being persecuted now. That the devil's upset, so he's now chasing them into the wilderness of this world. The wilderness that does not belong in the Roman Empire, yet is not in heaven either. It's in limbo land because you're not home. (laughs) You're in a strange land. And so they see themselves, because remember, John's readers are wondering, why are we being persecuted? John is answering for them, this is why. Because the devil is mad. He lost when Jesus died for our sins. He's been thrown out of heaven. So now he's using the powers of your Roman cities to bring hostility against you. That's why you're feeling this in this world. So then in chapter 13, the beast rising out of the sea, his readers didn't need to imagine some future world ruler. They had one. His name was Caesar Domitian, and he was claiming deity, and he was demanding worship. They watched in their own cities the parades go down their streets in which they were worshiping the emperor on his birthday, culminating by the nobles of the city offering incense to Caesar to show Caesar, we are your most loyal city here, please give us more favor and prosperity. They didn't need to imagine a future guy like that. They had one. They didn't need to imagine a guy who was willing to kill the saints. They know some people that were put in prison. Heck, they had a pastor who was on an island. And some had indeed been martyred. 
The second beast, who's demanding the worship of the first beast, they knew those people very well. They were the city rulers who were pressuring the citizens. Let's keep up with the times. Worship the Caesar. Worship him. They knew him very well. And you know what? The mark of the beast, you couldn't buy or sell unless you had. They also felt that pressure. For when you were in the market and people knew that you did not offer incense to Caesar, but instead you were part of that Jesus movement, they would stop coming to your booths to buy your stuff because you were considered a threat to society. You were hindering progress. So we're not going to buy your scrolls. We're going to buy his scrolls because he's devout to the emperor. Or when you go buy bread in the market, you're in line. These people are buying it for $2, let's say. $2, $2. You get there, $10, please. What? They all pay two. Ten. They know that you're a Jesus worshiper and you're not giving your allegiance to Caesar. That's on a good day. They're at least offering you some. They may just completely deny you any chance of buying anything. The state would not recognize your marriage. The state would not, uh, any debts that you owed, you no know, forgiveness because you are a threat to the society. You're not on board with the times. So the church in John's context didn't need to imagine chips in the hand and all these things. The number 666 alone, if it brought Nero to their minds, gave them enough terror. Oh, and the beast that was dead and came back to life. Well, that's very simple. Nero died and we thought, yay, no more persecution. But then comes the mission. Oh, per- persecution is revived. That's the mortal wound that's been healed. Nero's dead, but Domitian's here. So how would they be looking at this? How would they be pondering this? How would they be living through this? What is John wanting to encourage the church to be seeing and feeling and applying? I think the key would be over in the lengthy description of the battle of Satan and Michael in heaven. And the constant use of the phrase, there was no more place for the dragon. No more place in heaven. And that he was conquered by the blood of the lamb. So church, don't worry if you are going to have to shed your blood. This is all going according to plan. And by the word of their testimony, it's those who stayed true to Jesus and didn't cave into the pressures of society that were conquering. But again, he says, there's no more place for the dragon in heaven. Because church, there's a place for you in heaven. The dragon doesn't fit there. And his fear tactics that he uses through the empire and his religious jargon that he uses through the city magistrates, these things cannot move the person who knows where his place is. There's no place for those who follow the dragon and his ways, who give in and say, okay, enough, I'll go with the dragon and his beast and this economy. No, there's no place in heaven for that. And so John's encouraging him with the removal of Satan. There's room for the church. And that's where our true destiny lies. And we can be encouraged and strengthened to know I'm not abandoned just because things are hard and rough. And I'm not going to be in limbo when I die. But I have a place because the accuser who's been telling me forever and ever that I don't belong with God, I'm not worthy to be with God, and there's a fundamental flaw, and in my shame I should be like Adam and Eve hiding in the trees, covered in fig leaves, saying, get away God, get away. That accuser has been thrown down. And his words no longer have power. 
but the blood of Jesus has all the power that we need to conquer. And he's saying, don't listen to the shame talk, to the threats of society. That Oh, true men are macho and do this. True men tell their wife how to do things. True women look like this. True women are able to perform that and get real jobs instead of watching kids. Don't, you don't have to find your place in America. Your place is where the Messiah has the rod of iron, the heir to rule all nations who escape the jaws of the dragon, and he is the serpent crusher. Yes, his heel was bruised, but that very heel has forever cast the dragon out of heaven so that we are in heaven. And we're going to see his ultimate fate at the end of the book, the dragon's fate, that is. So I say all of that because it is very possible that the church is looking at that saying, wow, that's our application. And at the same time, the future is going to look like that too. Although the church will be removed out of it beforehand because our place in heaven will be occupied. <laughs> so brothers and sisters, the worship team's coming up so, so we can take communion. As we do so, let's thank Jesus that there is no place for the accuser anymore. And you need to understand this tonight that there is no place for the accuser in your life tonight. As you take the bread and blood of Christ, you are receiving his ultimate love. And you must, you must realize there is no place for accusation or for shame. I mean, going back to the woman being possibly Eve and the prophecy she's going to crush the dragon, that serpent... You know, Adam and Eve, they hid in their shame. And this is what shame does. Shame, first of all, is a feeling of being flawed and therefore unworthy of love. And oh, yes, you're flawed. I know it if you don't. You know it, though. And you know that I'm flawed. And we're all flawed. And so we all experience shame. And we all fear that we're unworthy of the unbelievably true love of God. And it's too good to be true. So we, we fear it. There's shame hiding us from it, like Adam and Eve hiding in the trees. And listen, this is what shame does. It creates prodigals who run because they can't believe this love, so they'll just keep going in their shame. It creates moralists who say, I have done shame, so I'm going to make it up. I'm going to do good deeds to prove I'm a good person. And then you have atheists who fight shame with shame and want to continue to disprove that there is some loving God out there, and they use their shame and project it onto other people. These are the reactions we see in the world. But what we hear is the glorious good news of the ascension of Jesus. There is no more place for the dragon. It is now our place. The accuser of the brethren has been conquered by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony.